So the passages that we're reading um, tonight are in your zine on page 9, 10 and uh, over the page. Um, Haggai's quite a short book but, and we're reading a fair chunk of it. Um, try not to get lost in the names and I'll try not to stumble over them. Where We might say, go tell Fred and Jack. They spend a bit longer saying, go tell Fred and Jack. So try and hang in there for the message. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Zodak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through it, the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be very little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for it, and everything else the ground produced, the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labour of your hands. Son of then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord, said their God, and the message of the prophet Haggai, because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then this message of the Lord to the people, spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of, you have let, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? 
But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. And then a few verses from John 2. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Bronwyn. She did well with the names, don't you think? <laughs> um, that's an amazing text. Uh, both of those texts are about the temple, uh, the Jewish temple in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. So we'll come to that in a moment. Let's you want to... You want to do this? Yes or no? Yeah. I mean, you turned up. Let's pray. Father, fill us with your spirit now uh, that our hearts may beat as your heart beats. Give us uh, kingdom priorities for Christ's sake. Amen. All right. Let's do this. There is a God... Guess you're not surprised I say that. There is a God and he has a will. That is, he has desires, plans for this world that he has made. Now what that means is that you can go and discover what that will is. You can find it in the Bible, through the history of Israel and fulfilled in the life of Jesus Christ. You can find out what the will of the Lord is and then you can hate it, if you, if you like. You can hate it and rail against it. Or you can love it and yield to it. 
Jesus himself teaches us to pray, may your will, he says to his Father, may your will, may your will, see there it is, your will be done on earth as it currently is in heaven. Or as Paul says, very simply in Ephesians 5, find out what pleases the Lord. Discover what pleases the Lord. Now right off the bat, that's interesting, don't you think? Right off the bat, that's interesting. I'll tell you why. Because you have a will. And probably a strong one. You have desires. You have plans. There's things you want. And there's things you'll do on the basis of what you want. Every time you make plans, you feel the weight of your will. Every choice you make, every hope you seek, every budget you set, every spark of anger when your will is threatened, every relief you feel when your will is done. In fact, I wonder whether most Australians' basic prayer, if they prayed at all, is something like, may my will be done on earth (laughs) as it is in my own mind. In other words, your will, and you have one, may in fact clash with God's, God's will. Just by the way, Tim Keller, United States, has this great reflection on this. He says this, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. In other words, his will would look remarkably and miraculously like your will. He goes on, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. Of course. So we are here at church to be contradicted by God. That's why we're here. Like we're like, bring it on. Doesn't feel good sometimes, but that's partly why we're here. Certainly why we're doing this series on the minor prophets. But the minor prophets is not a, they're not, they're not a, they're not the feel-good books. You know, not, there's no one like clambering to make a Disney film about the minor prophets. And yet what we do when we read the minor prophets is we come up against the face of God. You hear that? We come up against the face of God. And during this series, we're inviting you to have a personal relationship with God, which means at least to be challenged, to be bugged, and then to be healed and comforted, but not without first being bugged. These 12 minor prophets were truth-tellers. They're dropping truth bombs everywhere. Way back when, to ancient Israel and ancient Judah, some 2,600 years ago, Presbyterian writer, Frederick Beekner said, with a total lack of tact, the prophets wrought out against phoniness and corruption wherever they were found. They didn't have spin doctors. They told God's people that God would judge them for their sin and that God would send them to their own version of hell, which was then to be exiled to ancient Babylon which is now Iraq. But they said this, not because they were sort of 
hard-nosed, angry types. They said it because they felt God's heartbeat. They wanted the world to know the true and loving God, the holy and righteous one, but also the true and loving God, and no other. So Beekner goes on, the prophet's quarrel with the world is deep down a lover's quarrel. That's one of my favorite quotes. The prophet's quarrel with the world is deep down a lover's quarrel. If they didn't love the world, they probably wouldn't bother to tell it it was going to hell. They probably just let it go. Their quarrel is God's quarrel. In other words, their heart beats as God, God's heart beats. So, what does it look like to choose God's will? What does it look like to yield? Because, by the way, that's what a Christian is. Right? A Christian is not like a sort of good person in Australia with... Um, Christian values. It's not what a Christian is. A Christian is a, a person who yields to the news, whether it's negative, I'm a sinner, or profoundly and wondrously positive, he's forgiven you. I yield. So what does it look like to choose God's will and not your own? What does thy will be done mean rather than my will be done? So tonight, Haggai is number 10 of 12 minor prophets. He's the first prophet with a fixed date, chapter 1, verse 1, page 10 of Eusene. In the second year of King Darius, historians can name that date. On the first day of the sixth month, it's funny, it sounds so much like on the 11th hour of the 11th month, you know, it's, it's got that sort of remembrance they feel about it, isn't it? The second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. So God showed up to Haggai and said, I've got some news for the people. Historians date this year to 520 BC, 520 years before Christ. Why is it important? It's important because it's 18 years after their return from exile. All the other prophets so far spoke before the exile, before the judgment of God came in the form of the Babylonian army, the Assyrian army. So we're talking 90 years after, at least 90 years after all the other prophets. But in the midst of that judgment of the Babylonians, God had promised to be with his people, to return them to the land and bless them, and in fact raise them from the dead, which he had sort of done by bringing them back for exile, from exile. So in 538 BC, 18 years before 520 BC, and I know BC is just nuts, you know. That's, you know, it's nuts. 538 BC, God used Cyrus the Persian, in Isaiah, Isaiah calls him the Christ. Get your mind around that. He uses Cyrus the Persian, to defeat the Babylonians, issue a decree for the Jews to return, and some did. It's called the remnant here in Haggai. And when the remnant returned, part of their task was to rebuild the city, which had been flattened by the Babylonians, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. The Babylonians had flattened that first temple, but God had promised something better, something greater, something new, a new temple that was more glorious than before. In fact, you read... Ezekiel 40 to 48, and it, the new temple, is impossibly glorious. You know, flick through it tonight. Impossibly glorious. 
But when they returned, they experienced what you and I experience almost all the time. Disappointment. Look at 1 verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Have a think about your life. Verse 6. You planted much, you harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, never have your fill. You put on clothes, you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. I feel that way half the time. Theologians call this the return from exile fizzer. Didn't work for them. Actually, theologians don't call them that. I call it that. The return from exile fizzer. Summed up in chapter 1, verse 9, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. So instead of building the temple, which is what they were meant to do, they let it go. They started it, but they gave up. And they went for the intuitive option, the natural and easy option, which is to go ahead and build your own life, your own home, your own backyard, your own patch, settle it down. So the question in Haggai is a simple one. It's a word that God points out is evoked by the word of the people. Chapter 1, verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I've heard these people. They're saying the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Let's not build the Lord's house just yet, they said. Forget about the kingdom. Forget about all the hopes, promise in the prophets. How shall I put it? Um, they said something like, we aim for the mat." We aimed for the moon, we hit the back fence with a big thud. So they went intuitive. They settled for self. Summarized in the chilling words, here you are working and busy on your own panelled houses. You know, your patios and your paint jobs and your yards. 1 verse 3, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple in Jerusalem, remains a ruin? And in 1 verse 9, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your, your own house. Haggai is very simple, at least in chapter 1. It's about getting your priorities right. So, if you're following the outline on page 13... Uh, question, is it time to rebuild the Lord's house? And the answer is yes and no. Yes and no. And you'll see why in a moment. So back then, first point, back then, yes, it is a time. <laughs> that was Haggai's message to them. Get to it. Stop thinking about self. Stop thinking about your paneled houses. Start thinking about God. Get your priorities in order, which is not get your own house in order, Jordan Peterson style. You know, it's not clean your room. It's get God's house in order, which is not, you know, a building like this. Uh, you know, as magnificent as buildings like this are, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a temple in Jerusalem. And by the way, that's exactly what they did. Two weeks later, two weeks after receiving this message, they aligned their will to the will of God. They yielded. Look at verse 1 verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua. The Lord stirred up the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. And they came and they began to work on the house of the Lord 
Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month, and you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. So what do you learn? What do you learn? What do you, what's, what do you think you learn? Here's some thoughts. Number one, listen to your disappointments. Give ear to your disappointments. For all the pain that giving ear to your disappointments might bring, they are revelatory. Your disappointments will tell you what's on your heart. For them, they expected much, received little. So God is saying to them, consider your disappointments. And that's because disappointments will make you do things you otherwise wouldn't do. Being disappointed means that you could rally, you know, circle the wagons, and settle for self. I'll just buckle down, work on the house. thought it'd be better than this, but, you know, I can cut my lawn. I can do that, you see. So first, give ear to your disappointments. Listen to them. Secondly, don't let your disappointments and fears derail you from kingdom work, disappointments, fears, and persecutions, if you read Ezra. I don't know if you've been following these last two weeks in the media uh, with the school's letter. I can put it this way, an Anglican own goal, and it wasn't it, it was an own goal, with communications, together with media shenanigans, and it was media, it was an own goal, it was media shenanigans, equals more conflict, more suffering for gay people, more suffering for gay people, and more vitriol for the church. And, you know, I tended to do it this week. I'm, a, I'm a, an Anglican. I'm a Christian. I'm on a board of one of the schools. But, you know, you write wrongs. You ask for forgiveness, uh, which the Archbishop did. But you don't get derailed from kingdom work. You don't, let, you don't let it stop you. You don't settle for my own comfort, my own income, my travel plans, my safety, my own happiness, my own pleasure. Now, certainly we don't build a temple anymore, and I'm really thankful for that because I wouldn't want to turn up to Tel Aviv and catch a bus to Jerusalem and do anything to that building with that dome on the top. I'll go there and take some photographs, and that's as far as I'm going with that building. <laughs> I, I, know, I know the way it works. We're not talking about building a temple in Jerusalem anymore. It is not about bricks and mortar now. I'll explain why in a moment. But back then, it was about an actual temple which represented the presence of God among his people, the possibility of approaching him, Jew and even non-Jew, and of knowing him through forgiveness wrought by a sacrifice of a lamb. So the temple represented on earth a door to God. And God was saying to them then, attend to my will, build the temple, get your priorities right, Come back to your houses, no problem, nothing wrong with the houses. But do it so that more people might come to know me. It's kingdom work, you see. 
And let me be clear, it's not that building your panel house is wrong. Don't let your garden overgrow, you know. Paint your house, you know, whatever. Not at all. It's just that there are some times when you take a pulse check and you realize, I'm building my own life out of comfort and fear and, quite frankly, out of disappointment. And you might say to yourself, I thought attending to the will of God would bring me joy and happiness. And what I found out was it brought me sadness and anxiety and loneliness. Didn't expect that. And loss. And so you hunker down and, intuitively, change what I can change. I'll minimize my concerns. I mean, kingdom concerns are huge, right? But I'll minimize my concerns to maximize my personal happiness. It's classic. No point in shooting for the stars when my back fence needs fixing. But here's the key. Third thing you learn is they repented. Um, chapter 1, verse 14, 13, they, God stirred them up and they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month. Now do the math. First day the Lord came, 24th day of the month is when they began to work on the temple. 24 days from now is December 5. Nothing remarkable about that day. It's just 24 days from today. And I wonder whether an exercise is to put in your calendar, um, December 25, <laughs> put write something like, the conclusion of my 24 days of a spiritual audit. Give yourself a little reminder, two weeks before and one week before and two days before. And I wonder whether spending 24 days thinking about and praying about your life will be worth it. What are you spending your time on? Are you spending any time building the kingdom of God or is it all paneled houses? Now again, no temple in Jerusalem. We're not talking about a working bee here at church. We're not talking, I'm sorry, there's a warden in the room. He wants a working bee. Let's attend to the building. We're not talking about that. <laughs> We're talking about kingdom work. So I'll give you some examples. Are there people that you're meeting to encourage them in the Lord? Is there someone with doubts that you can get alongside? Are you offering prayers in the privacy of your home, to a God who hears? Is there a lonely person you're meeting in Christ's name? Or is it all about your concerns? Is there someone you can bring to the Thursday community evening this, this Thursday? Making sense of death and dying. Or November 22, coming to that Hope for Sydney uh, event down at the Garrison Church so that you could think about a new volunteer opportunity in 2019. Or maybe it is preparing for the city care lunch as we serve the homeless or a community group engagement. I mean, there's any number of things. And God stirs up things in you that I, you know, my list is like classic. But, you know, what is God stirring up within you? Jesus says the same thing to any of us who, out of worry, spend our days thinking only about what we eat, what we drink, and what we wear, which is circling the wagons and minimizing our concerns to maximize our happiness. Jesus says, Matthew 6, don't worry about what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. 
for pagans run after these things because they deal in the intuitive. Because there is only what you eat, what you drink, what you wear. There is only personal happiness. There is no resurrection from the dead. There is no future or no God. And so you can only, you know, be concerned about the things you're concerned about. But your heavenly Father, Jesus says, know that you need them. He knows about your housing situation. But, says Jesus, seek first the kingdom as a priority and his righteousness. And all these things that you're worried about, they'll be given to you as well. That's why the panel houses aren't wrong. But, Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow seems to be good at it. So look out for God's priorities. Seek first the kingdom. Let God bother you and let the kingdom shape you. There you go. Firstly, is it time to build the Lord's house? Yes, get your priorities right. But secondly, no. I'll tell you why. And what I'm about to say is at the heart of the Christian message, if you get it, not everyone will get it, if you get it, it's the sort of thing that when you learn it, you could become a Christian today because of it. What I'm about to say is at the heart of the Christian gospel, which is the power of God for salvation. Haggai says here, and it's crystal clear, he says, work all you want, that's important, prioritize, absolutely, but in the end, God is the one who does the work, ultimately, he'll build his impossibly beautiful temple in his timing, no matter what hammers and nails are in your hand, he will bless you, not you bless him with your efforts, because a year after this message came, to attend to the kingdom and not to your panel houses. A year later, a message came from God saying, actually, it's still going slow. Look at what you've done. It seems weak, but I'll do the work. So look at chapter 2, verse 2. Speak to Zerubbabel, said God. Speak to Joshua. Speak to the remnant of Israel and ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? Who remembers this house before the Babylonian exile? The only people who remember it are about 80 or 90 years old. But how does it look to you now? And by the way, this is God saying to the people, just open your eyes and have a look at the half job that's been done on the temple. Does it not seem to you like nothing? The building project was slow. The fizzer, right? But says God, chapter 2, verse 4, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. And work, absolutely, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Keep going, but know this. I made a promise, says God. Verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you when you came up out of Egypt, and my spirit remains strong among you. So be strong and do not fear. Why? What is the covenant? What is the promise? And here it is. Please put your eyes on chapter 2, verse 6. I promise you, your joy will increase tenfold. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth. I will shake the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. 
and any of you right now who have Handel's Messiah ringing in your minds will know that Handel got it right when he said, in a little while I'll shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. It's about Jesus Christ. The promise is, I will act again. Look around at your disappointing building efforts. You're doing the right thing, don't get me wrong. It feels disappointing, but know this, once more I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. You will see my glory and you will feel it. And, promise, the desire of nations will come. In other words, what everyone really wants will come. The one, the one whom everyone really wants will come. And I'll do it. Verse 2, verse 8. The silver is mine and the gold is mine. Make no mistake. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, shalom, in all your restlessness and disappointment, declares the Lord Almighty. And perhaps... If none of that made any sense, look at, actually 2 verse 19 is not printed there. God said to his people, from this day, I'll bless you. Not you'll bless me with your efforts, I'll bless you, says God. And later, in chapter 2 verse 23, not printed, on that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you declares the Lord Almighty. What's he saying? God will show up and he'll rebuild the temple. He'll do it, but not with bricks and mortar, not with your effort, not with the work of your hands, but by his chosen one, and he'll do it in a little while. In John chapter 2, Jesus came. Jesus was Zerubbabel's, Great, 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 great grandson. You know that from Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Jesus went into the temple to shake it up. And he overturned the tables in the temple. And in verse 18, the Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, right? Tear down this temple. I dare you. Tear it down, he says. And if you tear it down, which they're never going to do. But if you tear it down, I promise that I will rebuild it in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, speaking about Herod, Herod's temple. And you are going to raise it in three days? John makes the point, the temple that he spoke about was his body. Not about bricks and mortar, his body. The temple wouldn't be overthrown by the Babylonians. Rather, the temple will be taken down by the people of God as Christ went to the cross but verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples record what he said. They believed the scripture and the words that Jesus is spoken, had spoken. See, there is a God, he has a will, he has desires and plans for the world he's made. And those plans come not because of what we build, but because of what God built 
in resurrection hope through Jesus Christ, who is God, shaking the earth and the sea and the dry land. Jesus is now the temple, the true one, the more glorious one, the impossibly glorious one. And he's no longer representing God, no longer representing a door to him. He is God. He is the door. He is the place that we come to know him. He is forgiveness of sins wrought by his blood. He is God coming to them in a little while. So let me now leave you with the words, the challenge of Haggai. Chapter 1, verse 5. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. There's your 24-day spiritual audit challenge. Chapter 1, verse 7, repeated. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. 2, verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Same in chapter 2, verse 18. Choose the king. Prioritize the kingdom of God. That famous quote from Lewis, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. But if it's true, it's of infinite importance, ultimate importance, worth prioritizing. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Give careful thought to your ways. Seek first the kingdom of God. Seek first the king of the kingdom. Seek his finished work on the cross. He has blessed you, not the other way around. And then get your heart into it. Your heart, your calendar, your money, your time. And especially your investments in people and prayer as God builds a temple of people who know him and sing his praises. May his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may your will, may your will be challenged derailed and then healed and put on track with the will of God. May your heart beat as God's heart beats. Let's pray. Father, um, realign our hearts to, to your heart, to your will, to your plans for this broken and fallen world. Show us Jesus Christ. He is our door to you. We don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. We don't have to put brick upon brick and stone upon stone. We don't have to sacrifice an animal. For Christ is our sacrifice. He is our king. And so, Father, help us to prioritize your kingdom, to seek your will amongst people here and... Uh, wider Sydney and the world. Give us a mission heart for Christ's sake. Amen.